everyone, and welcome to another episode of At War, the podcast of the Conflict Law Center. Today, we're going to be talking about drone strikes, and we have with us Dr. Ahmed Siddiqui. Dr. Ahmed Siddiqui is a novelist and an academic. He completed his PhD from Oxford on the topic of Pakistan's relationship with Afghanistan and the impact of the Soviet occupation. He has taught courses on revolutionary war and counterinsurgency, the history and politics of Afghanistan, and the Israel-Palestine conflict at LUMS and the Lahore School of Economics. He is presently also writing a trilogy of fantasy novels based loosely off the culture and history of the medieval Islamicate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. So uh, this actually arose because I read your paper from 2015 on drone strikes. It was so interesting, and I think we're going to get into that in a lot more detail in the discussion. Um, and we'll also put the link in the bio for anyone who wants to go back and read it. I suggest to everyone that they do. Um, but just starting off and like getting the ball rolling, I wanted to ask a really, really general question before we go into the nitty gritty of who is targeted and how and all of that kind of stuff. In that, do you think that the advent of drone strikes their operation globally from Pakistan to Yemen, doesn't it infringe a basic right that humanity has had since the Magna Carta, the right to a fair trial? Um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, yes. It's interesting you bring that up because the the notion of drone strikes also came came in response, and at least their escalation to the extent to the level that it was during the Obama presidency was in large part a response to uh, the situ uh, situation created by Guantanamo. Mm. Uh, where, where people, you know, I think 779 prisoners were sent up till now. Uh, more than 600 have released gradually over the succeeding two decades, mostly without trials. And Guantanamo became a big uh, uh, cause at that time. Even uh, Obama, when he was running uh, for his presidency, uh, also promised to shut yeah. it down, a promise which was never kept. Mm. So, so although drone, drone strikes did start earlier during the Bush administration, they escalated a lot during the Obama administration, and there was almost a shift of the administration from a policy of capturing people without free trial right. to killing people without free trial. Mm. Now, the administration would argue that you know this is a war zone, and therefore you know concepts like free trial don't exist when you're when you're engaged in an active war against enemy combatants. Uh, but the fact of um, uh, the fact of being able to use drone strikes rather than commit U.S. troops and rather than commit uh, either on the ground or in the air has also allowed the administration to use drone strikes as a means of carrying out war in undeclared uh, war yeah. zones. So none of those wars were actually, uh, well, in, in many places where it's been used, in Pakistan, uh, Yemen, Yemen uh, Somalia, the U.S. is not actually actively at, uh, have, have, does not actually have a declared war uh, in place. And so the uh, the use of drones has been a means for the administration to kind of have the best best of both worlds in yeah. a sense they don't have to deal with the issue of trial and uh, if thinking of things as a policing or a justice matter mm. but they also don't have to submit themselves to the oversights uh, that congress has uh, in terms of uh, declaring war in terms of oversight committees and the like yeah, and also the issue of detention, right? right. Because then you you don't need to deal with them. You don't need right. To put you don't need to deal with what like, what the know. outcome of that. Yeah, is. exactly. And it's it's quite interesting to look at it in terms of the way drone strikes have come about. So, and you mentioned this actually at the beginning of your paper, which is that this is what the supporters say, this is what the detractors say, and the supporters. And we even have Pakistanis who you know have kind of hinged on the side of being like, oh, maybe drone strikes are a good thing, yeah. and they kind of argue that. 
you're seeing less collateral damage with drone strikes because they're incredibly precise. They actually comply far more with the laws of war than aerial strikes, aerial bombardments that we've seen in the past. And especially, um, it kind of blew my mind to see the, um, the Hellfire 2 missile and the fact that it can go through a building and detonate two, three floors down from, from the point of impact. So then it, it blows up there, which is incredibly right. targeted. And it's, it's the likes of stuff that we've never seen before. Um, so yeah, we have civilian casualties being reduced, but they also allow for the proliferation of the use of drones because now countries like the US will be like, actually, we need more drones, less boots on the ground, like you say. Right. And yeah, we're complying more with the laws of war. So what's the problem? And, you know, it's detractors being like, actually, what, what ends up happening is that you have an ever expanding entitlement to use force. Um, which do you believe that that actually, yeah, you proliferate their use, you proliferate the areas in which they're used because then you don't need to have them used in a war zone even. You can have them used wherever you're just sat there in Langley, Virginia, kind of like using right. a joystick and you can use them wherever. And also that they're very counterproductive in that they actually increase the risk of counterinsurgency. So like the, I think both of us kind of come down quite hard on the side that they shouldn't be allowed. But but just in terms of your thoughts about weighing these two arguments. So so I think for the first part, um, absolutely, I think it does uh, lower the barriers to conflict. Um, and that's just not, not just my and your conclusion, that's mm. the conclusion of uh, a number of studies and think tanks uh, within the US uh, military intelligence apparatus as yeah. well. So for example, the Stimson Center um, task force on drone strikes, which was primarily uh, staffed by retired uh, military intelligence officials in, in the US, raised this very concern mm. that, that in the absence of public debate, in the absence of uh, risk to US uh, uh, soldiers and personnel, um, the uh, the the ability to use drones outside of declared war zones was re uh, substantially reducing the barriers uh, to conflict and making yeah. it easier easier to uh, carry out uh, engage in conflict where you know the supporters often argue look the, the alternative is these you know uh, less discriminate sort of bombardments yeah. or or sending in troops and causing more casualties but in many cases where drones are used the alternative is not uh, and those, uh, those kinds of methods or drones, they usually, usually, often the alternative is drones or no drones. Right. Because yeah. that's the, uh, that's how the calculus mm. plays out. Um, you know, there's, there's one, um, uh, in, in particular, you know, within the U.S. Uh, military, again, there were comments about, you know, the, no the notion that the U.S. was actually carrying out, uh, strikes within a nuclear armed country without yeah. a boot in the ground. That mm. was something, seen as, some, as something revolutionary, uh, from that perspective. So, so in a sense, yes, I think uh, the use of drones in this way uh, certainly makes it more likely to create cause conflict in places where there isn't otherwise. Uh, but I do also feel that the notion that drones are more precise and cause less civilian casualties is not very well established. Okay. So, partly um, on the the issue is that a lot a lot of critics kind of confuse precision of a specific we weapons platform with all of the inputs that go into. Mm the process by which uh, by which decisions to carry out an attack are made yes yeah. and um, so the the precision of drones as a weapon is uh, in terms of their ability to uh, take civilian lives or not take civilian lives is dependent a lot on the sort of an intelligence that is mm -hmm. feeding into those decisions um, and um, you know the you know, there's two types of intelligence that 
and that US military uh, planners talk about, there's human intelligence and signals intelligence. Humans intelligence is basically uh, tip-offs, informers yeah. on the ground, and that mm -hmm. kind of uh, thing. Um, signals intelligence relates to surveillance by drones, relates to things like cell phone tracking technologies and the like. And often in the kind of conflicts in which drones are deployed, both those sources of intelligence are relatively poor. Mm -hmm. uh, so the US does yeah. not have extensive networks of uh, informers within Fatah. There also issue uh, uh, when it was using uh, drone strikes there, there were also issues about the incentives that were being provided to people in order to um, to report on supposed uh, militants uh, in the, in those areas. Um, it's a dynamic that was seen in Afghanistan where US commanders again noted that a lot of um, a lot of intelligence tip-offs were, were primarily based on local rivalries or yeah. there was you know, a range of incentives that mm -hmm. affect the quality of that intelligence that comes in. And so therefore that, that affects the likelihood of um, civilians being killed. Secondly, I also think that um, and and you and in fact in 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 Afghanistan uh, you know there's there's a there's a particular study uh, which is mostly which is mostly cla classified it's based on U.S. intelligence data and it's from the Joint Special Operations Command, um, but the conclusions are available and according to the conclusions we've talked about drone strikes in Afghanistan, uh, drone strikes in Afghanistan were seen to have close to the same number of civilian casualties per incident as manned aircraft. Mm and were an order of magnitude more likely to result in civilian casualties per okay. engagement. Wow. So the idea is that uh, when they define an incident, they mean you know, any situation, uh, like an event in which civilians were killed. So when civilians were killed, um, in a, whether it was a drone strike or by an airstrike, on average, the same number of civilians were killed. Mm. But drones were 10 times more likely to actually cause civilian casualties okay. in, because right. And that, and that and that again comes back to the kind of situations in which they're used, situations in which you would not risk your yes. pilots yeah. because you don't know enough of what's going on. Mm. But you can send in a drone because there's very little uh, cost uh, involved in that. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that annoys me mm. the most about drone strikes mm. is the amount of talk there is about the drone operators and mm. what they go through, and mm. the fact that oh, they might have you know this more special form of PTSD because they're following their targets so closely, mm. they see them playing with their children and that kind of thing. Um, and I remember reading a book called Drone Warfare by a French author, which was like they did more um, research into this, and they were like. It is nothing compared to how you would be in combat. Like this is right. a kind of an almost invented American thing mm. of it being like, this is how you would feel if like your Sims character died. Mm. It's nothing really more than that. Even if they see, um, and I was reading um, quite recently about how um, a, a target was taken out and his child was left behind. And then the, the drone operator had to see the child go and pick up parts of his father's mm -hmm. body and put them together and that he was traumatized mm -hmm. by that. And it, it's the whole idea of, um, it, it's, it's just the very Hollywoodized kind mm -hmm. of Americanized version of everything where like the focus is always on them and always what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about the, the definition of militancy because you talk about it a lot in the paper in terms of, um, this different approach and you quote someone saying that you know their definition of militant is really just young men with stubble so mm. it's literally just military aged male men and that obama came in and then he was like all of you countless combatants unless posthumously you're proved to be innocent and it was like a very strange like 
you're innocent until yeah. you're you're guilty unless you're proven innocent yeah. that too after your death um so can you talk to me a bit more about what we're talking about when we're talking about signature strikes or what we're talking about when we're talking about personality strikes and how they really blur the distinction between people who are or who aren't directly participating in hostilities because even going to high ground and getting cell phone signal that could count as you know questionable behavior right. uh, it could put you on a kill list even if you're going up there trying to find signal uh digging anything means that you were potentially planting an IED again you could potentially be on a kill list because of that so so what what uh, what do what does america mean when they're talking about these personality strikes and signature strikes so um so the so the distinction between personality strikes and um and signature strikes so from about uh, june 2004 um speaking of pakistan uh, that's when the first drone strike was carried out here uh, that we know of um till from june 2004 till december 2007 uh, the strikes were called personality strikes so that they were they, the idea was that they were targeted against specific uh what we call high value targets mm. uh deemed to be leaders of al qaeda or the taliban um and who were who were considered uh, part of the senior leadership by whatever metric was used um and so drone strikes were only carried out during that period under the bush administration when there was specific intelligence related to a, a, an identified uh high value target and if and if uh and it, a drone strike would be called out in response to that now this intelligence was still very often wrong so mm. the there there are very high civilian casualties in drone strikes carried out during this period uh in the Bush administration. I mean, what, the most notable um, single incident was the attack on the madrasa in uh, Bajor mm. uh, in uh, 2006, which killed uh, 82 people, 70 of mm. uh, 70 of whom were children. Mm. Um, so there were a lot of civilian casualties in uh, those drone strikes, but the fact that uh, they were only carried out in response to uh, specific tip-offs uh, meant that. Uh, Uh, the total number of drone strikes during that three-year period remained low. So mm. there, there's again, this is not a in in Pakistan. This was not a program that was ever officially acknowledged uh, or uh, any documentation provided. So the numbers of strikes you know, uh, are based off of news reports or based off of uh, accounts that certain aggregators have collected. Uh, but the range is believed to be about 10 to 14 strikes uh, right. during that period mm. uh, uh, to 2007. In 2000 and uh, uh start of 2008 onwards uh the bush administration started using signature strikes now these signature strikes are basically against people whose identities are not necessarily known mm. uh but who uh have certain signatures which are believed to be indicative of either being engaged in militant activity or being associated with a militant organization um and uh what precisely these signatures or you know the the other term that's used is patterns of life analysis mm-hmm. the idea of what kind of activities they're doing what precisely they are um is not uh you know has has not been spelled out uh but uh it's it's notable when often when when um when us officials were construct, uh, conf- uh, confronted with the consequences of strikes that they had carried out that they would fall back on certain responses okay um so for example there was a strike in uh, datakhir in uh, march of 2011 which killed uh, about 42 people at a local jirga mm-hmm. uh, most of whom were uh, pro government elders uh, people of the khasadar um frontier core they were also believed to be uh, maybe about four taliban members who were they were basically adjudicating a, a local dispute over chromium 
Mine, but this 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 was a jirka that had ten days in advance been provided uh, okay. authorization by the local authorities and so on. Mm. So when U.S. Uh, spokespeople were provided with information about the actual identities of all of the people who were killed uh, in this jirga, mm. the response was, "Look, uh, you you may have whatever intentions you have, but we know that a group of heavily armed men uh, were." Uh, were involved in this, and many of them were be, uh, were carrying out behavior consistent with uh, with uh, mil, uh, with militants, so with, consistent right. with Al Qaeda mm -hmm. uh, militants. Um, so this notion of um, you know, heavily armed men, again, when you're talking about Fata, the former Fata, yeah. um, um, having a gun on you is very commonplace. Mm -hmm. It's part of uh, you know. It's, Part of the local culture, it's part of uh, part of an, considered part of an individual's honor. In general, insurgents don't uh, don't have specific uniforms. They don't dress differently. They don't you know they don't look different from yeah. other groups. And so, the uh, the idea is that you know these drones were sort of trying to analyze and uh, drone operators were trying to analyze and on the basis of very little intelligence, uh, very little specific intelligence, what kind what kinds of people. So, you know, if you notice a lot of heavily armed people in in a pickup truck um, mm. moving somewhere, that's seen as a as a potential mm. uh, threat. And once you expand the, your strikes to this kind of yeah. um, uh, to a situation where you're no longer you no longer even know the identities of the people that you're targeting, mm. uh, then that opens it up to all kinds of uh, uh, all, all kinds of consequences like these. None of these deaths, you know, again, are officially very, very in very, very few cases are, they, are these actually officially um, acknowledged by the U.S. government. So you mentioned the issue, the the, the definition which the Obama administration used to uh, to classify uh, civilians, and the, and as you said, the definition was uh, which came out in interviews with the New York Times were, uh, of administration officials. The definition was was all military age males in a strike yeah. zone will be considered combatant, enemy combatants. Unless there's explicit posthumous evidence declaring them innocent, um, this assume you know this sort of implies that there's some sort of process posthumously mm -hmm. for determining innocence. Right, but there was no right. such process mm -hmm. at all. There was no indication that the administration was actually carrying out any investigations into who mm -hmm. they were killed. And often, yeah. when uh, when these deaths were brought, uh, when identities of people, civilians who were killed in these attacks were brought to the ad administration officials they would be met with these blanket denials mm. as well so so then so based on that kind of process the ad uh, you know in during the obama period uh the light society director john brennan were able to claim that no oh, you know in 2012 zero civilians were killed okay uh, yeah. that's the method that you're using then of course you're going to get that, that yeah, kind of answer yeah um yeah it's quite it's quite outrageous that even i mean Nobel Prize winner Obama <laughs> thought that that was like a very great metric for um, for drone strikes. It's interesting to look at them from that perspective, from the legal, we're looking at them in terms of civilian casualties, how accurate they are. I also want to look at them from the perspective of, you know, some people being like, nonetheless, they are legitimate because they're effective. And there's a really, really interesting bit in your paper where um, I can't remember who you're quoting right now, but he was talking about the strangely egalitarian nature of the mm -hmm. Taliban in the sense that it's not it, it's not the kind of central command picture, uh, mm -hmm. structure that we kind of picture where like you cut off the head and then, you know, the yeah. rest of it kind of falls apart. They're like, actually, when when they sit in a in a circle, they're like each everyone here is going to be as good a leader as I can be. 
And so when they do that, the minute you get rid of a leader, there's another one to take its place. Right. Within 24 hours, you have that nothing ends up being changed. Um, so nothing changes. And so what do you think about that in terms of the, the counter to yes, but they're still effective? Right. Um, so uh, the, the, the person you're mentioning, so he was the CIA station chief uh, in Pakistan during the late 1980s. Okay. Um, during the Mujahideen insurgency against the Soviet occupation. Uh, and as the CIA station chief, he was liaising very directly with Mujahideen uh, commanders, both in terms of financing and logistics and in terms of operations. Uh, so working very closely with both the ISI and the uh, and uh, Mujahideen commanders. And uh, so he had a lot of experience with these organizations and, and with their uh, battlefield performance. And uh, his argument was that um, and that basically the, the kind of uh, structures that uh, the uh, the, and the you know the uh, tribal structures in that region are sort of uh, egalitarian in the sense that there's 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 lots of uh, you know, very uh, small sub tribes there's and the kind of organizations that are formed don't have any central command mm. um, as a result and that was a, also you know that causes certain problems for an insurgency so for so for example uh, the mujahideen in Afghanistan were never able to carry out very coordinated large-scale attacks because they were a mostly fragmented insurgency. But what that meant is that you know, taking out an individual leader would at most mean that for a small period that particular front would remain in inactive until a new leader established himself. Okay. But for the large part, the rest of it would continue being active. Mm. And the case is similar with the TTP. You know, the TTP was an umbrella yeah. conglomerate of uh, you know, some 40 groups that came together without any sort of central strategy. A lot of these groups are effectively performing autonomously. Um, and uh, so the effectiveness of taking out uh, the leadership uh, with that sort of a structure is, is, is very, very questionable. Mm. And there, was, uh, there were studies that uh, looked at, for example, um, the use of air power in, in Afghanistan. Um, um, so, and the use of, uh, and the use of specifically drone strikes, uh, in Afghanistan as well. Um, uh, so when you one review, and this is again coming from a U.S. military source, um, the, um, uh, it was a review of studies on drone strikes for the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. Um, concluded that, there, that, uh, that drone strikes had no effect on insurgent violence in Afghanistan. Now, the okay. main purpose that uh, the U.S. was carrying out drone strikes in Pakistan was to stop groups from being yeah. able to carry out activities from uh, crossing the border from Pakistan to Afghanistan. So they concluded that on insurgent violence in Afghanistan, there was no outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a review of all the studies. Uh, in term, one study found a small reduction in, in insurgent violence in FATA, but the other studies which focused on Pakistan as a whole and not just FATA, again, either saw that there was no effect or that there was an actual increase in violence okay. in response to yeah. drone strikes. Um, another study on air power in Afghanistan found that, in general, the use of uh, airstrikes in Afghanistan was positively correlated with subsequent insurgent violence, mm. suggesting that not only does do, uh, do these strikes not significantly degrade uh, an insurgent organization, but the organization is then able to use that as a reputation building mechanism to show, you know, we can still carry out, look, we're still here, we can still carry out right. attacks. And so it, it yeah. results in actually more attacks uh, mm. taking place. And um, for me, I really, I really do want to talk about Pakistan's role yeah. in consenting to drone mm -hmm. strikes. Um, because we know that they played a very like Janus-headed mm -hmm. role where they're going to say, you know, behind closed doors, they're going to be like, yes, 
uh, drone strikes are fine. Uh, we know that PM Gilani even said, you know, we actually asked for more drone strikes. Like he yeah. actually wanted the Americans yeah. to do more of it. We know that um, they had a clearing the airspace kind of policy, as in the U.S. would be like, we're going to conduct drone strikes here. And then you would have the airspace in that area being mm -hmm. completely cleared. Uh, so kind of implicitly, impliedly yeah. consenting to them. And yet a public decrying of drone strikes, a public brouhaha in, in parliament about how, you know, it's an attack on our sovereignty, we shouldn't allow this, that kind of thing. Um, so what do you think could have been done to protect Pakistan's sovereignty? Like, are we just in, like, for me, if I'm talking about a sovereign state and someone is putting a weapon into that state you shoot the drone down that's yeah. what a sovereign state would do but is that am i living in la la land do we have to you know sit back and think about power relations and think about what pakistan could have actually done and even if we're thinking about it in the sense that we could not have done anything to we couldn't have said no to drone strikes at the time is there more that we could have done in terms of even providing for the victims right um so you know, I, I think this, this um, you know, it wasn't just Prime Minister Gilani, you know, before that, President Musharraf in an interview with CNN uh, admitted, um, this was, I think, in April 2013, that he admitted that that uh, that there was uh, approval given. Uh, he argued that it is only for, during his period, he argued that it was only for a very specific number right. of strikes where the targets were known. Um, um, and where there was no risk of civilian casualties, mm -hmm. and that was his claim in, in any case. Uh, so we do know that there was that has been a level of cooperation. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that, and I don't believe it means that they, that they uh, signed off on all on all of the drone strikes that were taking place. But there was certainly a policy of, if not approving, at least minimizing the fallout mm. and, and and choosing not to make it an issue. And it was certainly something that could have been made an issue. Yeah. And, and and was at certain time. And 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 in terms of the sort of responses that have been could have been taken. Um, you know, there was this, uh, there was an incident uh, in, in Salala uh, in November 2011, where uh, 24 Pakistani army uh, soldiers were killed uh, by, uh, by a U.S. attack. Oh, okay. And, uh, and the response at that time was to, boy uh, was to blockade NATO supplies, which were going yes. into Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and that blockade stayed in effect for seven months mm -hmm. uh, until the U.S. effectively apologized and addressed some of the concerns uh, that were raised. So... So there are certainly things that could have been done. There was certainly leverage that the Pakistani state did possess, which it chose not to use in mm. the case of drone strikes. Um, again, um, in uh, in uh, late 20 uh, in in 2013, um, in advance of the uh, the elections uh, that year, the, uh, the, in response to a uh, uh, drone strike, uh, and that was uh, in, in that was carried out in Khyber which at that point was governed by the PTI. PTI active, local activists started blockading NATO supply routes, mm. and uh, although the US didn't officially, uh, you know, publicly acknowledge that, they effectively paused drone strikes for right. six months while this was going mm -hmm. on. Um, so there are certainly ways in which pressure could have been yeah. exerted, uh, yeah. which it wasn't. So, so those are some of the responses that I think could have been made. Um, and yes, there's absolutely could have been a lot more done in order to compensate victims. So, so for example, I mean, uh, you know, the Fatah Secretariat does have compensation mechanisms, did have compensation mechanisms for people who were victims of, uh, you know, collateral damage of Pakistani military uh, strikes oh, okay. um, or of terrorist attacks. So there was a whole process by which communities could apply mm. to the Fatah Secretariat. And, you know, the degree of compensation may have been quite minimal, but at least there was some sort of a process. 
an, an equivalent process didn't really exist for victims of drone strikes because they right. weren't acknowledged by either okay, government. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, similarly, um, you know, the the US has uh, Congress appropriates uh, three million dollars, uh, which uh, for civilian victims of US military interventions mm -hmm. globally uh, every year, uh, and which is a quite a paltry amount considering the amount of war fronts yeah. the US is involved in. But in 2020, uh, none of those funds were actually dispersed because the US doesn't really have a policy of of making that easy for mm. victims to claim compensation. There's there's a general process of stonewalling of that. So certainly a lot more could have done, been done in, in terms of compensation. Yeah, and I think even in terms of um, even in terms of awareness, like when yeah. we're talking about victims of drone strikes, there's so much being said, and yet there wasn't a, an attempt made to humanize that face, which yeah. which I think is like you know in our age is so important in terms of right. like playing that information. Uh, warfare against each other. Even even if I knew of a victim, I can't name you a single victim of right. drone strikes. And yet I've I've read so much. It, it's just because there's not been that media attention to yeah. it. I mean, um, there was uh, so there was a project uh, so by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, yeah. which is one of the there's several new independent organizations which track uh, drone strike casualties, and they all have certain issues in their methodology. They're mostly based off of uh, newspaper reports. And um, a lot of the accounts that they get depend a lot of to on the sources that those newspapers are receiving. Yeah, the bureau is one of the better organizations. And yeah, they it had was a, so interesting for me to yeah. read that you were you were skeptical even of their numbers, being like yes. they're underreporting. Uh, I, I believe they they have a very high standard for yeah. reporting civilian casualties, and because they don't have an equivalent number for militants, so the mm. bureau doesn't have militants on the uh, doesn't categorize militants on the basis that militants is not a term that actually exists under international right. law yeah. which is fine but that has an inadvertent effect that most that most uh, uh, people uh, most uh, who pick up on on the bureau's figures conclude that oh okay only this many civilians are killed and the rest were militants hmm. in reality the the numbers that the bureau has are numbers for which they have some evidence that civilians were killed. Uh, not always very strong evidence, but mm. uh, but in many cases strong evidence. Um, and the uh, the very larger number of people who were killed is basically people about whom the bureau doesn't have information one way or right. another. Yeah. Um, so so their minimum they give a range of a minimum and maximum count of civilian deaths. A minimum count, I'm almost certain, is is an underestimate mm. on uh, because of the kind of conservative methods that they use in order to categorize a civilian death. Mm. Um, but uh, but in general, they have another project called Naming Naming the Dead Project. And oh, uh, when yeah. I was looking at these mm. figures, um, you know, at that point there were somewhere between you know in two to three thousand people uh, believed to have been killed by drone strikes in Pakistan. Um, at that time, uh, the Bureau's naming of the dead had um, was able to name about uh, 300. Uh, I, I forget which which category is which, but uh, 300 and 322 militants and civilians okay. who had been uh, killed uh, as a consequence of the attacks. And so that was a number about there were 700 uh, people that they were able to name, and of, mm -hmm. of those 622, they were able to categorize as uh, civilians and militants. Uh, which suggests, you know, out of about 3,000 people, you know, about maybe one in four people is even being assigned a name. So yeah. how much can you really say about, yeah. you know, what, what people who were killed, uh, whether they were mostly civilians or mostly militants, it's impossible to say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I kind of want to 
And so my last question is kind of looking at this from like a very forward looking approach in terms of we know that now we have US President Biden and he announced in Jul July 2021 that he's adopting an over the horizon counterterrorism approach, which was kind of what he'd also said about Afghanistan um, a couple of years ago, pre pre withdrawal, which is that we're going to have a continued reliance on drones to respond to terrorism without needing to have any American boots on the ground. So again, always saving American civilian ca American casualties. Um, and so in light of the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, what do you think that means for Pakistan going forward? Um, are we likely to see more drone strikes in Pakistan or is a shift, are we going to see a shift in focus away from AFPAC, from this being, you know, a failed war zone, kind of another Vietnam part two? So I don't think in the short term there's going to be much of an increase in drone strikes here. Uh, in, in general, drone strikes declined after, after about 2014 yeah. uh, in Pakistan. Uh, they went up on other war fronts. So in Yemen, Somalia, they went up for a few years. But right. in general, uh, in the last couple of years, I think the numbers are down even on those fronts as well. Um, President Biden, in general, has been a supporter of drones. Um, mm -hmm. So even in Afghanistan, during the period when, when uh, President Obama was, was trying to decide on a troop surge, Biden was very skeptical of the troop surge, quite correctly. Uh, he um, he didn't really believe the gen uh, what the generals were saying in terms of that uh, in terms of that making a difference to the war in Afghanistan. Um, but his solution to that was was drawing down, but with an increased focus on on counterterrorism, mm -hmm. and, uh, which meant which meant the carrying out uh, drone strikes, carrying special forces raids, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so th that has been something that he has been uh, be been in favor of. Um, Right now, when he came to office, uh, drone strikes were sort of paused as part of a general review. In almost every area, he announced a general review of policies, and uh, and so they they had been with that. Uh, they had been uh, paused as part of that. But I don't see that there's much in his background to suggest that uh, that he's become uh, a huge skeptic of uh, of the use of drones right now. Um, within Pakistan, I don't see that being. You know, I, I, as you said, because of the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, that strategic yeah. uh, interest is no longer there. Uh, within Afghanistan, however, there is still um, there is still, of course, U.S. global interest in targeting uh, Islamic State operatives, yeah. and uh, and so within Afghanistan, there is particularly a concern um, at um, with uh, with IS over there. Yeah, and um, even there, when um, the Americans did the drone strike very, very soon after right. withdrawal, the Taliban kind of said, "Oh, you know, this is an attack on our sovereignty," but right. they didn't. They didn't really make that much of a fuss and cry. Right. Uh, well, so th that was, I mean, one of the very rare cases where where the U.S. actually acknowledged yes. civilian uh, deaths yeah. of, a, of a drone strike, and that was just because uh, there was so much publicity on mm -hmm. that at the same time, and people were able to carry out on the ground interviews. Uh, and revealed um, it, it, it was a, it was effectively a signature strike. So yeah. they uh, so in terms of you know what we were talking about earlier, mm. they targeted a uh, white Toyota, which was because right. they they had intelligence right. suggesting that there might be a white Toyota that is uh, that is uh, carrying attackers, or that the attackers that had carried out the previous bombing had used that uh, sort of vehicle. Um, you know they they didn't know who they're killing. Uh, they ended up killing. A translator who had worked with U.S. forces, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, and his entire family, seven children, mm -hmm. were killed in that, um, and that was very soon after this uh, this uh, decision uh, of maintaining over the horizon yeah. capability. So I don't know if that has had any impact on, on that uh, on that decision, but 
but in general, um, the the U.S. has an interest in working with the Taliban uh, against ISIS, uh, against ISIS, and yeah. has been in the last uh, few years has mm-hmm. been under the table again working with them to uh, to uh, uh, to attack ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, but the U.S. has also made no breakthroughs in its relations with the Taliban. It is yeah. still subjecting Afghanistan to uh, heavy sanctions and uh, and and by withdrawal of aid has is played a role in uh, the uh, the cri- economic crisis that is mm-hmm. currently happening there. So unless unless that situation gets resolved, um, you know, there's m- less and less. Uh, interest for the Taliban in in terms of cooperating with the U.S. against ISIS, they mm-hmm. still have their own individual their own uh, individual interest in fighting ISIS. They 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 are uh, enemies within mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Um, but again, if uh, so, a lot does what hap- what happens in Afghanistan over the succeeding months or years sort of does may well affect the extent to which United States drone strikes coming back there. If there's a general collapse of the uh, Afghan state or if ISIS uh, takes on further route there, uh, you may begin to see uh, drone strikes being revived uh, mm. there again. Um, so specific war fronts, again, will depend on strategic interests, but I haven't really seen uh, any indication or acceptance from the U.S. administration about the limitations of drone strikes uh, as a whole. As I said, that they are, within the military, there are often studies or, or accounts that question their effectiveness yeah. within a broader counterinsurgency strategy. Uh, but they still remain very popular um, mm. uh, at levels of the administration, at levels of the uh, military intelligence uh, complex, where, I, where without uh, genuine recognition and assessment of their failings or, and limitations, I, I believe that uh, that interest in maintaining that uh, over the horizon capability, as he calls it, will remain, mm. and that may lead to flare-ups in different hotspots, depending on how the political situations are developed. Right, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think that was a really, really interesting discussion. Um, I hope everyone like enjoyed that at home, and I hope that you tune in for future episodes. Thank you. <laughs>